Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. All right, good morning, Memphis. Thank you for joining us again for our weekly Meanwhile in Memphis radio program here at 8 a.m. on Tuesday mornings on WYXR. My name is Anna Mullins-Ellis. I'm the president and CEO of New Memphis. We are a local nonprofit that is focused on making Memphis magnetic for great talent like you. I'm joined here in the studio with my co-host and teammate, Christy Mullen. Christy? Hello, everyone. We hope you are making it through another Tuesday morning. Thank you so much for starting your day with us. From coffee to the state of the arts, this will be a wonderful conversation. Today, we have with us entrepreneur and co-founder and CEO of Coffee Black, Maurice Henderson, and also the thriving arts and culture program officer for the High Foundation, Rachel Knox. Over at New Memphis, we are busy as ever bringing you guys quality events. And upcoming on November 18th, we have our final Celebrate What's Right conversation of the year. The theme this year is Culture City USA, and we are taking a deep dive into all things culture and how you know, our city is so much more than its grit and grind that defines us. It's about how the city makes you feel in your soul. It is not just limited to the arts, but from the food to the fashion to sports to music, they all play a unique role and an important part in creating a culturally rich city for us. Um, Memphis is leading the charge in becoming a cultural destination, and we are just using this CWR, which is short for Celebrate What's Right, to explore how the impact of culture is attracting and retaining talent in our city. We have a rock star panel for you guys. It'll be Rachel Knox, who you've heard on a previous episode, um, or if you're listening now, this episode. She will be our moderator, who is, she is a culture advocate and grant maker for the Hyde Foundation. There's Jason Wexler, who is a change maker and sports fanatic for the Memphis Grizzlies. Isaac Daniel, musical mentor and visionary for Stax Music Academy. L. Perry, who is the cultural content curator with The Daily Memphian, and Whitney Hardy, who is an arts advocate, activist, and innovator with Third Space and Epicenter. Um, we really, really hope to see you there. It's on November 18th. It's going to be an amazing conversation, fully virtual. You can find out more at newmemphis.org events. And please, please come out and celebrate this last one of the year. Um, we also, right now, New Memphis has Embark. We are recruiting for our Embark program. If you are a young professional looking to build your skills and your toolkit and meet just your peers and kind of find your happy back in your workplace and find a nice network of friends, please, please sign up for Embark. It is a four-month engagement that empowers high-performing 20-somethings. We typically mean that like if you're two to seven years into your career um, to grow and build your relationships and just grow as leaders and do great things for Memphis. You can apply now by, again, going to our website at newmemphis.org and just go under the Embark tab to apply. And we really need you. We need our young talent. We need to develop you guys. And we really would love to welcome you into the New Memphis family. So apply for that today. Thanks. We have Maurice Henderson here with us, also known by his pen name, Bartholomew Jones. He grew up in Memphis and later attended Wheaton College in Chicago, where he studied elementary education and sociology. And now he's back here with us in Memphis and is a local creative currently creating hip-hop, working in education reform, and making some major moves in the coffee industry with his co-founding of Coffee Black, which is a social movement connecting culture to coffee. All right. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Let's jump right into it. How are you? I'm doing super. 
super good, y'all. How are you? I am great. We're super excited to have you in the studio with us today. It's my first time actually meeting you, but I've read so many great things about <laughs> you. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're Memphis famous. Yes. Hey, you know, I'm working on world famous, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're getting there, honestly. Man, it's been crazy. Um, Memphis has such an entrepreneurial spirit and a culture, you know, that's just synonymous with a plethora of things. And you were working to add another to that list. You have taken kind of something that's really common in all of our lives, coffee, mm -hmm. and you're turning it into this tool for reform. So let's just kind of rewind. And I want to like start to the basics for your listeners who may not be as well acquainted with you as like I am through reading about you. Um, just kind of get back. Where did this all start? What was the reason for choosing coffee? Man, well, in the beginning, Y'all created the heavens and the earth. I was about to say, I love that you start in the beginning. <laughs> and uh, after all that, somewhere around there, he made coffee. And then, you know, a little bit later, he made me. Um, <laughs> all the important things. <laughs> yeah. And so for for us, coffee has been kind of like a rite of passage in my family, you know? Like, it was like, you got to be old enough to take a sip, you know? <laughs> and um, I was a junior deacon at our church. And so we used to, you know, give out the programs and stuff when people came in. And we sat right next to the little coffee canister. So we would get the powder sugar and cream you know what I mean uh, and just drink that while we were sitting in the back of the church but uh, I never really liked it though you know uh -huh. I, I kind of was you kind of had to like fix it up you know and um, I would I really didn't start enjoying my coffee for what it was until college um, my dad had introduced me to Kenyan coffee he went to uh, HBCU here um Lemoyne on and he went to Kenya while he was there and got into Kenyan tea and then a little bit later got into Kenyan coffee but I never really liked it he would try to give it to me or introduce it to me it was Starbucks Kenyan coffee but I was like eh, I'll get the Frappuccino you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. and um when I went to college long story short uh like I became lactose intolerant or I guess the lactose intolerantness that was inside of me became more apparent <laughs> and uh, I just had to drink it black because I had lots of late nighters and like having your stomach churn while you're trying to study is a terrible feeling while you're not getting sleep. So uh, it just kind of led me down a rabbit hole of finding the best black coffee since mm -hmm. I had to drink it black. It was like, well, who has it better, you know? And um, I was in Chicago. So that led me to a lot of the Chicago land roasters. And so you find intelligentsia and stuff like that. And uh, when I moved back, my wife and I met, we got married in our first Christmas for our, uh, for our marriage, she bought me an espresso machine. And that kind of lit the spark that coffee was not just something I could drink to enjoy or to nerd out about personally, but it was something that I could actually invest in. So I always say my wife was the first investor for Coffee Black. You know? um, but yeah, we started this together. It's been a crazy journey. And, you know, finding out about the black history of coffee uh, was really empowering for me because I had been going to a lot of specialty shops. I was always the only black person there, which was like nobody was mean. So it wasn't like, oh, poor me. You know, it was right. fine. People were nice. Um, but it was weird. And I was just wondering why that was, if this was like maybe like a culturally white thing. Like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, what's that like Swedish pancake thing that people have? You know, like I was like, maybe this is like a culturally white thing and I just, it's from Europe or something. And I just, the, the reason why we're not doing it is because it's not indigenous to our culture. So it's like a an experience where we have to be kind of like introduced to it. But when I found out coffee was actually from Africa, it was discovered by the Oromo people in Ethiopia and then um, shared with the Yemeni people across the Red Sea. I'm like, well, how does something that, first of all, is literally black, like that's the color of the substance, and then also historically black, mm. 
become a thing that black people don't consume in like uh, a high quantity. Like it's always kind of this weird consumer block where you don't really know anything about it. You don't know the history. You're just getting, you know, Folgers, even though yeah. that's coffee from Colombia, right? You don't know that mm-hmm. it's just Folgers. So how, how, where did this kind of gap in understanding come from, which led me down another rabbit trail. And I'm a nerd at heart. So like I always introduce myself as an educator, an MC and a coffee nerd. And I've just been into comic books and a lot of nerdy stuff as a kid. So <laughs> coffee has been the latest obsession and it's kind of turned into a way to find empowerment and really rediscover a part of black history that's been missing and also to bring economic opportunities to a lot of people in our community who need it you know and my family included so tell us a little bit about what is coffee black so for those who may have no no reference yeah coffee black is a social enterprise that Mm -hmm. wants to reclaim the black history of coffee and use black culture and hip-hop to reimagine this black future um, and so that's really what we are. We sell apparel. We do educational events in the community every week uh, called um, Brew Ups. We do these weekly cuppings. We also do, obviously, coffee. We focus exclusively on Ethiopian coffee okay. because that's where coffee was discovered. Mm-hmm. And so that's the educational piece there. We have education in the back of our, of our bag. We also do music because we think that music and culture is honestly historically been a part of anything significant in our community and i'm an independent musician i'm an independent rapper Um, my wife's a singer and music has just always been a part of how we progress forward as a people as african americans and really as africans and so it's essential for us to be a part of this process too and uh, actually interestingly in my research even I found a lot of coffee farmers, specifically in Africa, like sing cultural songs as they Hmm. pick coffee and process it. And so that's been a big part of how we want to reclaim it, right, is bringing Mm -hmm. the musical musical aspect. Because that's really the issue is that the story around coffee, the narrative, the branding around coffee has been colonized. And Mm -hmm. that, that originated in 1616 when coffee was stolen by the Dutch from the port of Mocha. Um, and when that was stolen, um, that began this process of like this colonial grab for these resources. And then we know this is not a new thing. People have been plundering Africa for a long time. Right. Uh, but coffee was one of the things that was stolen and then planted in different places. Uh, so we look at Indonesia, even the name for coffee, right? People think, oh, I'm going to go get a cup of Java, right? But Java <laughs> is an island in Indonesia. It was the mm. first island where coffee was uh, colonized, right? So they literally made coffee plantations when you read the history. <laughs> it's I crazy. I did not um, either. I'm so, learning yeah, so much Javanese right now. Japanese people were enslaved to grow coffee for the Dutch. And so that's why we call it Java because that was the primary exporter of coffee, which is weird that it has this kind of like hold on this yeah. can't be Java it was like yeah. nah this is kind of dark I was about to say <laughs> history is literally dark it's when you go into it literally dark <laughs> like, um, and so yeah that's that's one of those things and, and the reason why it had to be stolen is because the Africans who discovered it right uh, this collab I think of it like a cipher if you're familiar with hip hop but it's this like collaborative process between the Ethiopian people and Yemeni people they had made a pact they were serious like hey we're not gonna let other people grow this they can buy it from us and so people were buying it it was becoming popular in france and in england people were into it and it was this weird kind of mystique where they were like this is from the dark continent it's like controversial should we even drink this so i remember there's this story about an emperor who like it's a christian emperor and coffee was seen as a muslim drink at the time and so um i remember there's this story about this emperor who was like man we're hearing all this stuff about coffee and all these cafes are popping up and there's like a stereotype about like really illicit things happening at this cafe it's weird to think about that at a coffee shop now 
but at yeah. the time they were seen as very risque. He was like, let me let me get a cup. I need to see what this is all about. <laughs> so he gets a drink and he's like, this is so good. It has to be from God. It can't be demonic. <laughs> so I'm going to bless this drink and say that we're like cool with it. So coffee was growing. It's popular, but all the purchases were coming from Ethiopia and Yemen. Right. So that kind of frustrated a lot of the colonial powers who were like, these people have a monopoly on this. Why won't they just give us beans we can grow ourselves from a business perspective? Of course, you're not going to give up <laughs> the thing you have that like is becoming super popular yeah. in the market. You don't want to give your patents up. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, that kind of set off this the colonial exploit. They try to steal it. Right. And so when the beans were finally selling, they actually had to go twice. They went once to Yemen at the Port of Mocha. They got them, tried to grow them in the Netherlands, and the, ne the coffee is a fruit, right? It's the seed of a tropical fruit. Mm -hmm. You cannot grow tropical fruits in the Netherlands. <laughs> so they failed in that uh, in that attempt. Try. Right. We like to call it Grand Theft Java, right? Like, it's crazy. So then they ended up finding, they were trying to get spices from, like, the Near East, right? And so they end up going to Sri Lanka to get spices. And while they're there, they find uh, coffee plants growing in Sri Lanka. And I believe those were planted by Muslims. Um, uh, conquerors who are moving through that part of the world. And so when they took over Sri Lanka, they took those plants and then moved those to Indonesia. And then that plant, those growing plants that were being forced to be grown in uh, Indonesia was given to the emperor of France, one plant, one viable plant that you can grow. And that ended up being the plant that the French then used or a descendant of that plant was one of the plants that the French then used to grow coffee in Haiti and in Brazil and in a lot of places they conquered in the uh, Americas and Central America. So it's crazy how this whole process led to coffee being colonized. And then, of course, we know when Brazil and the Portuguese, well, not Brazil, but when the French and the Portuguese got to Central America and South America, like they did the same process the Dutch did in Java. You colonize the people, you enslave the indigenous people, and you make, you grow cash crops. So we all know about same thing that happened in America. We know about cotton, sugar cane, corn, but coffee was a cash crop mm -hmm. that was also included in that. And slaves were brought from from Africa to grow these things along with the indigenous people who live there. And so it's, it's a really storied uh, history, but it's also a great opportunity for, we like to call it like self-imposed reparations, right? Where like, that's a kind of, that's a conversation that's happening and people are kind of saying, well, we hope people will do it, but it's like, okay, well, if you know there's a need in your community, in our community, it would be nice if reparations came. I think they should, but I'm not going to wait on it. You know, like people are dying. So let's go to an industry and what better industry where there's a historical heritage there to be reclaimed and start businesses in this industry, right? And make connections with people who are of the same heritage as us and like build opportunities for ourselves. And so that's kind of how we view it, you know? I hope that everybody who's like driving to work right now with a cup of coffee yeah. is like having a very reflective moment. This is really yeah. fascinating. I didn't know. I'm sitting here like with my mouth open, like I didn't know all of these. Well, things. this is cool. Like, like coffee is the new classroom for me. I was an educator for ten years, so was my wife. I always say my wife is the best. Renata Henderson. She's the best teacher I ever met. So she taught me everything I know. But we both have grad degrees in education. Um, and one of the things that frustrated me as a teacher was all the information I was giving my students was was hinged on it being valuable because it could be transformative. So the information could lead to transformation. Well, that was the hope, right? It's, this is valuable yes. because it could. But I didn't really have any insurance on that, right? Like it was, I hope when I teach you about, you know, catcher in the rye or whatever, that someday this leads you to be able to make money, right? But now the information and the history of the literature I'm learning about and I'm teaching can very directly lead to you know, I literally was just on Instagram today and I hopped in one of my old students live. He was in our honors class. And I was like, look, man, 
when you gonna come work for us? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I, the history and the information directly leads to financial opportunities and like really can transform our lives. And so coffee's this $200 billion industry. And we're like, man, it makes sense for us to be reintroduced and to become a part of this industry again. Like it's kind of been too long. Yeah, no. And that's like, it, it's such a, you know, as we look at urban areas across the country, like local coffee shops is such a thing. Like, you know, it has such yeah. a cachet in a way that. You they know. say coffee shops are like the signifier for gentrification, mm-hmm. right? And um, you know we're we're working on some apparel for this year, and it's, it says uh, it's kind of on the anti-social social club. If you've seen those, those yeah. pieces of apparel, but it's gonna say anti-gentrification coffee club. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're like really. I think that it's one of those things where people move into urban or black neighborhoods or Latino neighborhoods, right? And they move into these communities with these coffee shops oftentimes. And the focus is always on these single origin coffees. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you all about how unique and special this coffee from this one particular country or this even one region of this country. Let me tell you all about it. And we do all this research and studying and people get scientific tools because I am a coffee nerd. So people get like refractometers to measure the total dissolved solids within a liquid, right? To do all this stuff. I know what all of that means. <laughs> yeah, right? so we do, we do all this work and research to, to learn about the single origin product, but then we ignore single origin people. Like yeah. this neighborhood is full of single origin people who have a unique history and unique notes that God has given them. And all we do is pour sugar and cream on that. We just say, hey, you adjust to whatever my palate wants, right? Get with it or get out, you know, and we've seen even this year, all these like people calling the police on individuals and like coffee shops can oftentimes be the center of that type of attitude where it's like, I don't like this kind of view here in my neighborhood. So like sugar and cream. Right. But then when it comes to the coffee, we pay all this attention and highlight its unique notes and history. And it's like, could we, if we pay, if we took a modicum of the energy and attention we pay to this substance or this product and actually focus it on the people, right, who are oftentimes from the same countries as this product we're drinking, I think we would have a better experience as human beings and as communities, right? And yeah. why not, if we're paying attention to this thing these people produce, let's pay attention to these people and the history of these people and the people who have been carted out from these countries and like brought over to different countries as slaves and now they have to adjust. Let's let's focus on not just the product, but may, I see the product as a great opportunity for us to be reminded of if this product has value and it's made by God, how much more then do these people who are made in his image have value? Right. And if we can spend all this time and attention and get the, almost this like endless like, coffee's weird. It's like my wife says it's like an adventure, but there's this endless uh, like array of knowledge to find out and adventures to go on and new things to learn about coffee. Like yeah. this should tell us like, wow, this is literally just a seed of a fruit. People who are like almost impossible for us to exist. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> the chances of a human being existing are so slim. How much more value is there and how much more yeah. attention should we pay to this person? You know? I love that. And I think you have just taken this thing and turned it on its head. And looking at your website, your marketing is just on points the only thing to say. Like you hey, are that's marketing. My wife. My wife does your all wife, I got. She is in the studio in the recording room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just props to you, ma'am, because it is so good. Yeah. And so one thing I know everybody has to notice is you spell coffee with an X where That's the correct. O would be. Yeah. I know 
the way to hear you talk so spiritedly about things, I know that has to be with some intent it is behind intent, it. Yeah. And I am very curious what that is. Yeah. Well, the, the X for us represents two things. So one, historically, the X is represented for the nation of Islam, um, specifically black Muslims. It's represented um, the search for history, right? So we know Malcolm X, uh, formerly Malcolm Little, changed his last name to X because Little wasn't his real ethnic last name, mm -hmm. right? And we hear, like, I remember going to college and I had a lot of white friends right and they would tell me like i'm one fourth dutch and one third scottish and they would kind of <laughs> list off all these things right and i was like oh this is so dope and it would yeah. make me sad because i'm like i don't really know any of that right about myself and so my wife and i this month are actually doing like a dna test to find out Fun. um funny story actually we hope to one day buy coffee from one of the countries that we find out in our like dna test i think that would be cool to like make that connection again through business but um for 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 the for Malcolm and for a lot of the nation of Islam and for a lot of Black people in general, like there's this recognition that my last name doesn't really mean anything. Like it just connects back to the group of people who happened to purchase me on the auction block, right <laughs> after we were brought. And so that's not there's no value there, not really. Um, and so they chose to change their name. And the, the X was the placeholder until they would find a name that was connected to their ethnicity as best they could with no DNA testing, and that was meaningful. And so a lot of people know that Malcolm changed his name to X, but they don't know that that wasn't permanent. He yeah. eventually picked the last name Shabazz. And so you'll find his children right now, you know, they have the last name Shabazz. And so for us, that X represents like a journey to find a missing link. And when I learned what I learned about coffee, I was like, wow, this is a missing link in our communities globally, right? This is a connector between like African peoples in the diaspora that's missing. And so this X represents like us using coffee as a means to like go on this journey of self-discovery, right? Because it's deeper than just yeah. like, you know, ground seeds and hot water. Like for it's, it's, it's more meaningful. And so it represents like coffee is the beginning of this search for missing identity. And then also uh, in math, we know, right? Like I'm a nerd and I was, I was an English teacher. Now, <laughs> I was about so to say, I'm terrible a, at math. So I was I'm not like, a math <laughs> teacher. That's my brother's forte. He actually is a head of all of our production, Julian Henderson. He's a music teacher. And they say musicians have like this mathematical mind. Mm -hmm. I don't. He's a, like a classically trained musician. I'm a rapper and I make beats and sing. So like <laughs> maybe it's just the level of, of like how far you want to go with it. But math has never been my forte as far as formulas, but I love concepts in math. Like I love the ideas or like the literature behind mm -hmm. math, if that makes sense. And so like the idea in math of there being variables, right? And there being, especially when you get into functions, right? There's these unique uh, values that when you input a, a good, right, that or a certain function, that it can create this infinite possibility of these infinite values. So for me, like a variable is just showing that there is a value here that's missing, right? And But when you figure it out, when you input it, it allows you to create a solution or a sum. And so for us, coffee represents like the fact that each human being has a unique variable to them and that there's something unique and special about all of us and that that deserves to be highlighted, right? And not just... uh glossed over or assumed we should pay attention to solve for x right and so for us like when those variables are there it's, it's a reminder that each person we meet is made in god's image and they have a unique value that deserves respect and attention right and we have to find out what that is in order so that we all can reach a greater good right we can all kind of collectively meet the sum we need and if we don't solve for x like our our value at the end is not complete you know mm -hmm. so that's what that represents for us those two things that's amazing. You're just so thoughtful in everything you say. <laughs> yeah. Like hearing you speak, it's just you're talking about coffee, but there's so much more to that. And I'm just kind of 
taken aback, not just yeah. just because you're such a presence and you can tell that you have really poured your heart and soul, huh, poured, pun intended, <laughs> your heart, your heart and soul into this. Um, and it's just kind of amazing. I want you to tell the people listening, how can we find Coffee Black mm -hmm. out yeah. in the wild of Memphis? Or okay. like, how can yeah. we get involved with what you guys are doing? For sure. So there's a couple ways. The best way to partner with us is to join our subscription service. So it's called, we call it the Brew Culture Subscription Squad. That right? is but it's, adorbs. Yeah, I love it's that. super <laughs> dope. But essentially what it is, is a monthly subscription. So you get a bag of our coffee, which is Guji Main. It's our signature blend. It's an Ethiopian coffee from the Guji zone of Ethiopia. Um, and so that's the first thing. And then you also get another bag. So we do these collaborations called the 166 collaboration. We also do limited remixes of different coffees when we want to highlight a different region. They're limited, of course, but we like to do those. And so you'll get a bag of OG Guji, the original Guji. Uh, and then you also get one of our other limited drops, whether it be a collaboration or it be a remix that we're dropping. Um, so you get that every month, two bags of coffee, and you get a print designed by my wife or one of our other graphic designers we collaborate with. Uh, so this past month, we had in the box was um, our 1616 collaboration, which is basically a project just to collaborate with other uh, brands to kind of redeem that negative history of 1616, yeah. right? And instead of negative collaboration through colonialism, we want to do positive collaboration through coffee. So um, our collab most recently was with Onyx Coffee nice. out in Arkansas. And so it's a Binti, uh, sorry, I'm sorry. It's a Buriti coffee from the Buriti washing station in the Guji zone. Super delicious. Literally one of my favorite coffees of the year. And Onyx is one of my favorite roasters. So we were hyped to collab with them. So in the box came a bag of OG Guji that and uh, a coffee black bandana, which says no sugar, no cream that my wife designed in collaboration with another company called Coffee People Zine. Shout out to them. So they got a bandana, two bags of coffee for like 28 bucks. It's like a awesome. steal. <laughs> um, I know. I'm like, why am I already not a member of this hey, club? Come on, get in. Yo. <laughs> like, so our goal is we want to get 100 subscribers by the end of the year because that reoccurring monthly payment really allows us some consistency with paying our employees and sure. by employees I mean like we pay our mother-in-law she does all our fulfillment Omarion is one of our mentees uh, he's really our head of our head barista at this point he's been with us for like four years um, and so he's in high school right now but he's learned so much about coffee my younger brother does you know our whole family and community is a part of this and so like we don't have we don't have any like investors there's no credit cards we use there's no loans it's just been us working really really hard and praying yeah. to Yahweh to ask him to bless our work so we can help people and as a teacher I found out like man I would do this really good work and we would find really good things and but we because we were publicly funded as a teacher um, a lot of times <laughs> the funding would get pulled and then mm -hmm. the work would go away and we had no way to consistently secure funding it was kind of dependent on if somebody else said thought we were doing a good job or if they decided they wanted to give that much so the last year as a teacher, I started this. Uh, we I worked with a group of people to help start this performing arts school called Astor Preparatory College, uh, Astor College Preparatory Charter School <laughs> in South Memphis, where my dad grew up. And my dad played trumpet in, in high school, and he had to go to an integrated school, which was really kind of traumatic for him. And so, like, it was like, man, you shouldn't have to get bust out of your neighborhood to pursue the arts. Mm -hmm. And so um, we started this performing arts school. It was my dream job. I was basically a rap teacher. Like, I did uh, arts integration through hip-hop. And uh, we, it closed. It was open for, like, six months. It closed in December because of lack of funding. Yeah. Right? And when that happened, I was like, man, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to try to help my community and start something, and then I can't finish it because the funding, some, like, white guy somewhere is like, I don't want to fund this anymore. 
I'm like, well, that sucks, right? <laughs> it's so disheartening. It sucks, like, right? So I was like, what if we had a for-profit business, but we did nonprofit work with the profits, right? <laughs> so it's like now I'm not dependent on anybody else. And self-sufficiency is a big one of our big values. Um, so anyway, like we were like, yo, the, the we started doing that. And so for us, anybody who's a subscriber is literally like funding the work because that gives us consistent monthly income without having to rely on creditors or whatever to be able to do this nonprofit work we want to do. So that is why you should join the subscription squad. Locally, like yeah, locally you can get our coffee at Tamboli's, Makita's, uh, Society Memphis, Comeback Coffee, uh, Coffee Central, mm -hmm. uh, both locations in Mississippi, Blue City Donuts, Voodoo Cafe, uh, I think that's everybody. This is with nine spots. Yeah. So um, where can they go to get a subscription? Is there a coffeeblack.com? Coffee Black yeah, this is coffeeblack.com. You coffee go to Black dot com. with an X, right? C X F F E E Black. The X is where the O goes. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great way to support. And if you want to check us out locally, you can hit up one of those shops I mentioned. We literally just took like forty pounds over to come back this morning. So. It's dope. And well, I, wanna... I wish I could describe the smell of your coffee in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like very intoxicating. So yes. if, if the smell is any indication, I'm very excited. It's so good. And one of the beautiful things about this is we've been able to collaborate with uh, one, one a guy I met locally. His name is Kenny Baker, and he's the roaster for our company. He has his own company called Ethnos Coffee, which y'all should also check out. Ethnos Coffee is really dope. Their whole thing is like collaboration across cultures through coffee, which is like uh, Kenny's one of the only white employees we have. That's not like because we don't have white people but he would well, our goal was focusing on our community yeah. but Kenny partnered with us and it's crazy like his story and I can y'all should check him out like he's dope but his story growing up in Memphis he went to uh I think he went to oh wow what was the name of the school and it's not Raleigh, Egypt. It's Craigmont. He Craig went to Craigmont growing up. And so like he was like, man, I grew up around black people all the time. He now wants to start a multicultural church. And he's like, man, I have a heart for justice uh, and uh, specifically dealing with racism in America. So he like was willing to partner with us when we were starting our uh, coffee brand and like has been a constant. Now our families are super cool. Like it's like for me, when people ask like, what does allyship look like to me? Kenny's the epitome of that and his family, like they're super dope. Um, um, they're family now. So, yeah, definitely check out Ethnos Coffee. Yeah. Check out Kenny Baker. He's super dope. You definitely have coffee as, like, this uniting factor. <laughs> it, it's crazy, it's, right? Yes. Like, yeah. I'm just sitting here like, this is awesome oh, is so what it is. here in Memphis, which <laughs> yes. I mean, my, my last question is, I know that you have Memphis roots. Yeah. I don't know if your wife does I grew does up as in well, Blackhaven. But... She grew up in um, North Memphis in various parts, you know. So yeah. why did you come back here to start this endeavor? Like, why, well, why is I'm, it headquartered here? Yeah, we moved back. I went to, I, I grew up in Whitehaven um, and then graduated from high school and uh, went to Wheaton College, which is like right outside of Chicago mm -hmm. and uh, got my elementary education major. And like, I intended on never coming back to Memphis, but it's like my senior year in college, like Yahweh just kind of changed my heart toward Memphis. And it was like, you need to love this place because if nobody else loves it, like how is it ever going to get better? Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, I don't know. It's literally a, an emotional change in my heart. It was just a yeah. divine work by Yahweh. So I can't really say why. I don't expect other people to make that decision, but we did. 
did. And when I moved back, I started teaching at New Hope Christian Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I actually interviewed, like when I moved, I was like looking for jobs and community development and stuff and had an elementary education. So I interviewed for Crosstown, like for a job oh, here randomly, yeah. but it, it didn't really exist yet. It was like 2011. <laughs> it was so it was like, it was just an idea. Stuff. Yeah. So did that and then taught there for a while. Then I went through Memphis teacher residency to get my master's okay. um, because I was like, I just wanted to get another degree. And honestly, it's dope job security. Like mm-hmm. I was seeing people get fired in education a lot or losing their job or laid off. And it's like, yo, MCR kind of guarantees you a job for three years because you have to do <laughs> yeah. it to pay the loan off. Yep. So my dad was like, do that. I met my wife um, who had just finished MCR. And so I taught in uh, Orange Mound for three years where her grandma lives. And then we started this school and uh, we were already here doing the work. When, when I went on my first date with my wife, I was like, hey, babe, I think Yahweh wants me to live in the hood. Like, even though we have college degrees, like this norm, not the normal trajectory, but this is what Yeshua did for us is that he kind of like intentionally went where there was work to be done. Um, and I was like, man, this is where we're from. And if we should expect anybody to like, care for our neighborhoods like we should be doing it first and we weren't the first people to do that her mentors were already doing that mm-hmm. the joneses chad and janine jones but like it was something that we had seen and we're like this is what we feel convicted to do and so on our first date i was like so would you be cool living in the hood she was like oh i'm already gonna do that like, girl you fine like Ugh, so it's dope. meant to be yeah it was meant to be it was literally love at first sight so like we moved into the heights or nutbush as it was called when i was growing up um which is actually the neighborhood where i went to high school in so yeah, yeah we moved over there and just started like mentoring kids and sharing the gospel making disciples and um like that led to a business i think but we already had the roots in the neighborhood and relationships with kids and people in our community and the business was just kind of like the final piece after we had been there for like five years yeah yeah well memphis has such soul and like i'm very glad you listened to your soul to come back here to this city because you guys really have planted some seeds that are growing bringing it back around obviously everything's you, related you, uh, to coffee you might have a rap, i'm not even doing it on career, purpose you know? <laughs> i mean don't tempt me yeah <laughs> got some bars in it but uh, you really are and it's just i love to hear the story especially in the work we do as new memphis of talent even though you left memphis for a while something just called you back to this mm-hmm. place and told you to come someone. back yeah. something someone yeah. and you you listened and you came back and you are making these phenomenal things happen. And so first, I just want to say thank you for what you and your wife, Renata, yeah. are doing for the Memphis community because it's really just sitting here listening to it. It's so impressive and just so, I don't know, it's inspiring is what it is. Amen. It's inspiring yeah. to hear. Yeah. Seriously, you. I mean, uh, you know, we we believe really strongly in that, in that, that ethic that you were describing that is like – if not you, who, you know, if we don't care about our city, whether you're from here, you moved, you know, like if you don't care about where you're from and you don't, you can't really be bad when other people don't. Exactly. And people should like, we should love all human beings equally, but it's kind of like, I agree. And I I say often like Memphis isn't, I I don't want to say that we're special. Like we're not better than any other city. Yeah. But we're different. We're We're different. We're ourselves. And if we're not able to invest in us and believe in, and giving back and, so this is awesome. Your yeah. coffee smells amazing. <laughs> I'm yeah. like very thirsty now. Um, That's what's up. We'll have to so get you out some coffee. coffeeblack.com. Yeah. Go. Uh, I'm going to subscribe immediately. I'm definitely going to so subscribe because I didn't know there was let's a subscription Let's get him service. to 100 subscribers before this end of the year. That would be amazing. Because that is what I want to see. Um, yeah. We're so thrilled that you came to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, y'all. We appreciate it. All right. You have a good afternoon. Yeah. Appreciate Bye. y'all. Y'all keep that coffee black. Yeah. <laughs>
Memphis is transforming our city through the power of connection. Be sure to stay connected with us by following at the New Memphis on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. In the New Memphis, we like to keep our doors open, and there's room for everyone here. We know in the South, it's a little rude to talk about money, but did you know the cost of living here is 14% lower than the national average? At New Memphis, we know there's so much to celebrate about our city. Visit newmemphis.org to learn how you can get involved. All right, guys, currently serving as the Thriving Arts and Culture Program Officer for the Hyde Foundation, a 30 Under 30 MBJ winner, and 40 Under 40 Urban Elite recipient, we have New Memphis alumni and friend Rachel Knox here with us. Welcome, Rachel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing today? I'm great. We're so happy to have you here. You're such like a cheerleader I can't even think of like a better (laughs) word for you for like culture and the arts in our city um as we've already told the people I know you work for the Hyde Foundation for those listening that may not know what what does that mean what does the Hyde Foundation do sure um so the Hyde Family Foundation is a philanthropic organization um that gives away grants to nonprofit organizations each year and we have four focus areas um high quality education uh vibrant spaces and communities which really focuses on parks and neighborhoods um and then we have arts and culture which is my portfolio that I manage. And then we have engaged leadership and civic pride, which is really about how do we help to support current leaders, raise up the next generation of leaders, and make sure that we're all cheerleaders for the city of Memphis. Awesome. I'm so happy that you're here with us to kind of talk about that. So when you guys give out dollars to these organizations that kind of do the pillaring things you just mentioned, what does that how does that work? Do people apply to get that funding or? Yeah. Um, so we have a, a pretty extensive application process. Um, we have four deadlines each year and um, we, you know, find out what the organization's doing, um, like what their mission is, how they've been serving the community. Um, and then we, as program officers and directors, do these write-ups that we kind of explain uh, the organizations and their value, of course, to our trustees. Um, and then our trustees vote on whether we fund them or not. And so um, we're able to fund most of our organizations um, that apply, um, and we're always looking for new people to support. Um, So it's a really fun process because we really get to see like a a broad view of the city of Memphis across a bunch of different sectors. So it's really nice. Yeah, it sounds like the best job. (laughs) (laughs) I want my job to be giving away money to like amazing organizations, like like career goals. Yes. Um, Well, so we want to dig into arts and culture. Sure. For our audience, um, we hope that Rachel will be a regular guest because she is, again, sort of at the epicenter of all of these different organizations, individuals who are making making our culture, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we have a, a more topical conversation because uh, in a couple of weeks, in two weeks, in fact, from today, yes, uh, we will have a, an event, a virtual event that all of you are invited to. It's free and open to the public to celebrate what's right luncheon on Memphis culture. Mm-hmm. And as we in New Memphis think about what makes Memphis magnetic, mm-hmm. what makes Memphis unique, why is it that anyone would choose to live, work, invest, develop, you know, build a life here in Memphis. And we believe that culture is an essential component of that. And in some ways, culture is this sort of like vague term. It encompasses like all of the stuff that, you know, 
can be, you know, visual arts and performing arts to food to sports and just all of this stuff. But I think you guys are you guys have really helped understand one why it's important, mm-hmm. two why we have to invest in it. So just yeah. tell us for Memphis, for any city, why does culture matter? Yeah, I think um, culture matters because it is the identity and soul of a city, right? So if you think of your favorite place to visit or cities that you really like, most likely the aspects that you're going to um, give as reasons why you love that city are probably going to be the cultural aspects. Like you said, it's going to be, oh, I love the food in New Orleans. I love the music. I love going to see live shows in Austin. I love Broadway in New York. Um, And all of those are cultural aspects. Right. And so Memphis is really fortunate because we have a really dense cultural community. We have incredible food and restaurants. We have this music legacy that, you know, has not only shaken the world once, like it's a place where lightning is struck twice and continues Mm -hmm. to strike even um, beyond soul and blues music. uh, You know, the sound of hip hop is the sound of music, and that's incredible. Um, You know, we have these outstanding nationally recognized theaters and performing arts venues and organizations, um, and all of those make people want to live in a place, you know. Um, People want to move where it feels like there's synergy, where you can go out, where you can meet new people, where you can really get a sense of the community, and those are going to happen in places where people gather. So it's going to happen just as much at a Grizzlies or a Tigers game as it's going to happen seeing Hamilton at the Orpheum Theater or seeing, you know, the Nutcracker um, that Ballet Memphis produces every year. And so I think that um, when we talk about culture, what we're really talking about is community. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the future, I mean, I, I think oftentimes our conversations about Memphis culture is really steeped in history. And we mm-hmm. do have this really rich and dense history to draw from. And I think it still informs our present and how yeah. we're moving forward. Um But as we think about the organizations that are really moving us forward Mm -hmm. and pushing um, our cultural narrative in Memphis, what makes what's exciting to you? Like, what are those organizations or individuals? They're like, you've got to check this out. Like, this is a Memphis gem. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a couple of of organizations and folks that I um, absolutely love. Uh, Collage Dance Collective, um, which is located in Binghampton. They have a brand new state-of-the-art space that they're really literally putting the finishing touches on. Um, And it's going to be so many firsts for the city of Memphis. It's going to be... Collage is already our first uh, black dance company in the city. And they have this broad space that's larger, that they can perform, that they can continue to create um, really incredible work. But it's also one of the only black dance companies in a 400-mile radius Mm -hmm. of the city of Memphis. So that has a much larger reach than just our city, our county, and that's really important. Um, I would say another organization that I feel like is doing incredible work, um, although, of course, the pandemic has changed how all of the work is happening right now. We'll we'll get to that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is Music Export Memphis, Mm -hmm. and uh, they're a nonprofit organization, but they're very unique because they help to really serve artists who are, you know, independent contractors and really a for-profit business um, to help them not only become ambassadors for the city of Memphis, but to really help um, push the narrative of what Memphis sounds like today. Um, Artists make so much of their um, money touring, like that's where the money comes from now. So if you have musicians 
when they are able to travel yeah. <laughs> and talk about the city of Memphis, that also has like a cross-sector synergy where people come back to Memphis because they really love the music that they heard by these artists. Um, and then I would say just the last um, organization that I think has done some really incredible work is Urban Art Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, I think public art is incredibly important in cities. And I think we see this in larger cities where they have really robust public art programs. Um, you know, you I think Memphis is very similar. Um, and the Urban Art Commission has been very intentional about making sure that, um, you know, there's equal access across all of our cities. So you can see murals, you can see sculptures, all of those things. And I think like as those programs continue to grow, we'll just see even more cultural density um, in our in our communities, which is absolutely important. I love that hearing you talk about it, you get such a sense that arts and culture, it is not just fun and, you know, a pastime. It is a driver for economic growth Mm -hmm. for our city. Um, Can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and how you see the city like growing because of these things? Absolutely. So um, I guess I'll continue kind of my thought process with Urban Art Commission. Um, They have done some really incredible work with our convention center um, and incorporating uh, art into that space. So you have all of these people that book conferences and they are surrounded by this incredible art from local artists, that's a driver, right? Because that also gets people um, out of the building. And there's um, some some semi-permanent art installations that will change out. Um, And that also will be tied to hopefully other exhibitions that are happening in town that will also drive people to um, that work. I think uh, using art as an economic driver, Crosstown is a really excellent example of that, obviously. Um, Memphis is really great at a adaptive reuse, which is very unique Mm. compared to other cities. Most cities will like tear things down (laughs) and they won't be around and, you know, they'll build something on top of it. But Memphis is like, how do we preserve the Mm -hmm. past while still reaching forward to this new future? And I think another organization that is going to do that really well is The Collective. Um, They're a Black Arts Consortium based in Orange Mound, which is one of the oldest Black uh, communities in America. And they are going to adapt uh, this old like equipment building, a United Equipment building. Yeah. It's going to be very similar uh, to kind of Crosstown. It's going to have live workspace. It's going to have a stage. It's going to have space for um, small businesses and nonprofits to incubate and to also have space of their own. And it's really going to be centered and, and modeled after what makes sense in Orange Mound. And I think that that is what's really important because the arts help people tell stories. 100%. And so much of the work that has to happen in our city has to be from the perspective of people who live here, not someone else's vision of what they think people might want. And I think that's what Memphis does really well in integrating artists and culture creators into kind of community development here. That's a beautiful thought. Um, You know, my perception over the last 10 years has been that we've really advanced our investment and sort of uh, thought about the treasure that is our arts community and and tried to grow that. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, you know, obviously from a philanthropic perspective, the Hyde Foundation and others have been a huge component of making mm-hmm. yes. this possible. But what do you, you know, as, as you guys are helping these organizations think about a sustainable future mm-hmm. and think about centering their value for people who are benefiting from their art, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm mostly asking about money, right? So, like, yeah. what, what, what are we doing as a community to say, like, how do we, how do we not take these things for granted? And for any individual listener, what does that mean to them? 
And how do you translate, yeah, I love I love the music that happens in Memphis, but I'm not paying for it or I'm not supporting it. What does that look like? And how do you guys help organizations develop a plan to create that kind of sustainability? Yeah, no, that's a really excellent question. Um, well, I guess the first thing I have to say is right now, of course, because of the pandemic, it's all hands on deck. Yeah. Um, our cultural sector in Memphis is very fragile because so much of it is nonprofit driven, mm-hmm. um, which means that even though I would say by and large, our organizations have been so careful, so thoughtful about the resources they have, how they bring resources in, but the pandemic doesn't care about that. And I mean, unfortunately, art is a business that relies on people being in close contact and proximity (laughs) to each other, whether it's the people on stage or it's the people in the audience. And so it doesn't matter, you know, how careful the organizations are going to be if you can't have the people together. Um, So I think one of the first things that, you know, we're we're trying to be very thoughtful about is um, making sure that everyone is buying into Memphis's culture and being an advocate for it, um, which means that we have to kind of go beyond um, just the the transactional work. Like we have to really dig deep to support our cultural sector right now. Um, and our cultural sector has done a really great job pivoting. So it's going to look very different. Um, both Collage Dance Collective and Ballet Memphis um, are going to have subscription services this year. So they're going to produce their work on uh, television. Ballet Memphis is doing its production of The Nutcracker and WK. KNO. Um, Collage Dance Collective will be doing four shows um, between January, February, March, April. (laughs) I can't count. I don't know this month. What does time Uh, even mean anymore at this point in COVID? I get everything confused. I know. I was like, I don't know what day it is. Um, So January through April, they'll have a show every month that will be on WREG. Um, And then for like, I think 11 bucks or 15 bucks um, a month, everyone can subscribe to get additional content. um, And some of these really special projects that honestly, if we weren't in a pandemic, would probably not come to fruition. So it's a a great equalizer in that way. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be ways that we as audience members will have to support artists and arts organizations that pivots from this idea that we have to go to some place and pay money to I'm going to pay 11 bucks a month for the subscription service because we want to make sure that when we get through on the other side, I can go back to, you know, the Cannon Center and see Collage's performances or Playhouse on the Square uh, or go to Playhouse on the Square and see Ballet Memphis's performances. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then I think this is a really great time for us to just shift our mindset in general. Um, Memphis is a music city. It's not really a music venue city Mm -hmm. in the same way that, um, you know, Austin is really known for live music. It's a part of kind of like the cachet to go listen to bands live. And I think that we have to really focus on changing that. So not only supporting artists when they are and musicians when they're going live or they have a Patreon or, you know, these kind of little actions that keep them able to sustain their work. Like when we are able to be back in place, all of us will have to go support them in place. It's no, there's no excuse anymore, right? Um, Because if we want to keep that and we want to retain this part of our culture, we're going to have to do some things that we've never done before. And we're going to have to change some mindsets that we've had previously. Yeah, no, that's... I was having a conversation with my husband last week. He was like, how much money do we spend every month on Patreon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of the 
ten dollars. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm like, it's the, it's money well spent. Yes. No, I've had that con- like my savings account has. I've been fortunate, but I didn't realize how much of a patron of the arts I was <laughs> um, <laughs> until like the pandemic hit, and I was like, why, why do I have mo- so much money left over? At the end? It's like, oh, because I'm so used to having like tickets to the Orpheum or going yep. to see a show, or I'm going here, going there. Um, luckily, we have such a vast amount of resources in our city that offer like free days and free nights yeah. and things like that. You spoke to something that I find really interesting, which is the accessibility. Mm-hmm that this pandemic has. And although I know that there's a whole other conversation we could have about people who don't have access to, you know, internet and things of that nature, but it's the way we consume the art Mm -hmm. has changed. Yes. And you spoke to that a little bit. I kind of want to know, do you think when we go into the future post pandemic, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) will that ever happen? Like, I don't know when that will happen. (laughs) Just in my dream world, post pandemic, do you think that we'll see this like new hybrid model kind of come to fruition at all? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that this has really caused um, organizations to rethink their models um, and to also um, value their art in a very different way. Um, I think when the pandemic first hit and everything kind of shut down, Um, What we saw was just kind of like this mass throwing things on the internet without any thought (laughs) Thought process, no rhyme or reason behind it. And it was a lot of noise, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, it was really hard to get people's attention for like the work that you were doing because everybody's work was online. So it was really hard to differentiate between the work. Um, And artists already have such a problem with like actually valuing their work. And as a society, we have a problem with valuing the work of the creative class. Um, We want things for a discount and for exposure. And last time I checked, like... People's landlords don't take exposure. Exposure <laughs> does not so, pay the bills. It does at not all. pay the bills. Um, and so I think you know, once people were able to take a step back, um, I think um, they really were looking at how do we make sure that we are offering things that anyone can access, um, but also how do we show that this still has value and it's worth paying for, right? Um, and I think that's where we're seeing things like Indie Memphis that was able to that just finished up their film festival um, did a really great job of not only offering you know in-person stuff at Levitt Shell and Shelby Farms Park and at the drive-in which was a, is such yeah, a new experience for so, so many people yeah. and is so fun um, but also like just having the movies online that you could stream mm-hmm. um, and I think that that was really important like I brought a pass and I did go to some of the drive-ins but also I was like I just kind of want to watch this at home and that was great and I was able to like share that content you know and watch it with like my folks and, and friends and so it was really a good opportunity um, to still say like, hey, this has value. You have to pay for it. But here it is. Pick pick whether you want in person in quotation marks or uh, virtual. And so I think that that, you know, has been really great. And I'm sure they'll continue doing some some version of that. Excellent. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, we are thrilled. Rachel has agreed to facilitate. She's moderating our panel for this next luncheon. It's going to be great, guys, if you don't come. I think it's going to be great. You're going to miss it. It's been such a strange year to celebrate what's right. Yes. (laughs) Um, And in some ways, I think, you know, one of our discoveries through this work as we've pivoted and put things online, we have seen – an expanded audience. We've mm-hmm. seen a more diverse audience. Yes. We've seen an audience that we might otherwise not have brought in person to a luncheon, which is exciting for us. And I feel like this topic in particular is just so inviting to truly anybody in the community who 
you know, sometimes when we, just for the audience's context, we have this luncheon series called Celebrate What's Right, and the name describes what it is. (laughs) We try to to select uh, a topic, an issue, something that we can really be proud of in Memphis, something that we're moving forward in. And it doesn't mean that we've gotten there. It doesn't mean, oh, like you know, job done, but it means that like we're innovating and finding unique solutions mm-hmm. to solve problems. And, um, you know, when it comes to culture, I really do genuinely feel like we have so much to celebrate. We do. And even in a year like this, um, our, our city is so rich with unique experiences that are both, you know, I, I always say to somebody when they're moving to Memphis, we have everything that you would have had in your, whether you're coming from New York or LA, like whether it be you know, theater or dance or visual arts. Um, we have that. We have it. Um, you know, we have an abundance of it. Yeah. It's very accessible. It's very affordable. Yes. Um, so, which is all to say, Rachel is, is <laughs> moderating this panel. I'm super excited about it. Tell us a little bit about, you know, so she's going to sort of do a little bit of table setting for us. Mm-hmm. What do you hope for those? Again, the, the luncheon is on November 18th. 18th. Yes. It's from noon to 1 o'clock. It's free. It's a virtual event. So go to newmemphis.org. You can uh, register and get the link. We hope you join us. It's going to be a good one. Um, but tell us, what do you hope to, if someone comes to the luncheon, what do you hope they walk away with? Yeah, I hope that they walk away with a um, new sense of what Memphis's culture looks like and sounds like today. Um, I think you said kind of at the beginning of our time, you know, so much of our cultural sector is really steeped deep in our in our history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great, but there's so much exciting stuff that's happening now. Um, and I think you know we get sometimes bogged down in this kind of blues and barbecue narrative, mm-hmm. and there's wings and hip-hop and there's, you know, um, uh, James Beard, you know, nominated chefs and there's, you know, basketball, you know, like I think that all of the things that make Memphis an excellent city are things that you can experience today by people who are doing the work now. Um, if you want the the legacy, you can have it, but I hope people really come away with like, oh my gosh, how do I get plugged in to what's happening now? How do I support these artists now? How do I support this narrative that we're working on right now um, because that's how cities grow. It can't always be the legacy. Yeah, I love that. At New Memphis, we do a lot of work with people that are new to town. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, later this evening, we have like a virtual reception for people who've just moved to Memphis. And we try to just like welcome wagon them in. And we always bring like a group of ambassadors, so people who are just like Memphis natives who love this city. And then we bring in people who are new and Mm -hmm. they just chat. And the conversation is always 100% about culture. It's about food. It's about (laughs) art. It's about where to go, what to do, how to experience the city. And so, you know, to me, when we think about Memphis being like a sticky city for anybody, a place where you want to live and work, it's it's at the top of the list. For sure. Well, Rachel, we're thrilled to have you this week. Thank Thank you. you. We'll have you back soon. Uh, We're looking forward again to having Rachel facilitate our conversation for our Celebrate Right Luncheon on November 18th uh, from noon to 1 o'clock. Yes. Go and to Memphis.org, register. We'd love to have you join us. Yeah, no, I'm so happy you are here. And at the end of this episode, you will hear me list off who the rock star panelists that she will be moderating are. Right. And you guys, you don't want to miss it. I'm not just saying that because I'm an arts nerd. I'm saying it because you need to come. Tell them, Rachel. Yes, you need to come. <laughs> don't miss it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks Thank a lot, you. Rachel. Appreciate Bye. it. Do you love what you hear and the work that we do? Make a donation to New Memphis at newmemphis.org. 
In the new Memphis, we never settle for the status quo. Medical advancements are a part of our city's DNA. We are home to world-class, innovative healthcare facilities. Did you know that one in three Memphians work in the healthcare industry? At New Memphis, we know there's so much to celebrate about our city. Visit newmemphis.org to learn how you can get involved. guys thank you so much for listening to this episode of meanwhile in memphis i'm so happy that you guys are tuning in to us again you can listen to us every tuesday at 8 a.m on wyxr and we are so happy you joined in today to listen to this if you would like to know more or stay up to date on the things we talk about in our episodes please just follow us on social media at the new memphis or as always go to our website at newmemphis.org Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR, produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins-Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com.